Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutner. Welcome to the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening and for joining Revolution with High C again this month. It's my pleasure to be here with you, and it's also my pleasure at the beginning of the show to welcome some fellow co-hosts for our roundtable discussion, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning. John Carousella. Good morning, High C. And we have a special guest from Nova Scotia, Canada, who is joining us, Madonna McGuinness. Hi, hi, C. It's so nice to be connected with you again. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for uh, joining me for this discussion today. And um, I was prompted for the discussion by uh, something I'm currently reading and working on with uh, someone. Um, in It's a book called Make Magic of Your Life by T. Thorne Coyle. And uh, I'm just going to read a little excerpt from it that kind of is the the genesis of our discussion today and it, it relates to answering the call of desire or as T. Thorne Coyle puts it in the book the tug of desire and she says regardless of how desire arrives what we do next says a lot about our conditioning and personality and our relationship with ourselves we can choose to listen more deeply to this longing and find forms of self-expression that are not just ways to break free at any cost, but ways to invest in our soul's unfolding and our heart's desire. Do we really want to react against what life has given us, or do we want to take the time and put in some extra effort to choose actively what we really want? Reaction is not good enough. Learn to claim, to act, to say yes. So my first question to my distinguished colleagues here is when that call of desire is making itself known, how do you feel that we can recognize it and then listen more deeply in order to acknowledge it, honor it, and then be willing to take action on it? Well, I see for me, I think the first step uh, is to is to allow that desire is not a bad thing. You know, uh, you know, as as T. Thorne put it, um, what we do next says a lot about our conditioning. And I think in a lot of cases we're conditioned to think that desire, when it shows up in whatever form, is some indication of weakness of character, and. Uh, and that we should control ourselves and that we should have control and eliminate desires that take us off of our uh, off of away from our plan, whatever that is. Uh, and I, I think that's that's what prevents us from actually listening deeply to the nature of the desire and what it's trying to convey. So really come for me, it comes down to accepting that, there's a reason desire is 
being presented and to accept that that's actually a message that's what worth I, that's worth investigating what i found out about desire from a personal perspective is that when it appears in its beautiful form we tend to put restrictions on it and we say well i'll let myself experience this desire within this context or a little bit or not at all because it bubbles up all different types of emotions and the other thing I found, and once again, this is called being from the school of life, is that because desire is such a wonderful feeling and a deep feeling and connected with maybe your higher self, you have a tendency to think that it's all or nothing. If I follow my desire, oh my heavens, what will that mean in my life? Who will I become? Who will I not be anymore? Where will I be? What will I have to let go? So it brings about all kinds of questions. And what I've learned in the, in dealing with desire is to tell myself it does not mean all or nothing. You can you can pursue desire, that connection, that wonderful feeling, just a little bit as a pilot project and see where that takes you because then that takes the pressure off so that's been what I've learned and I find it really works for me and maybe it'll work for some of our listeners I see desire for me is is a really interesting uh, feeling concept I grew up in a culture where desire was named dissatisfaction so for me those initial feelings when I was really young of desiring something different, something new, some change, was always uh, defined as dissatisfaction by my parents, by my culture. And so it's been a real uh, challenge for me in my life to open up my heart to desire, desire of being the person I feel comfortable with living the way I'm comfortable and just allowing that process to lead me. I'm still struggling with that, the impact, I call it, of desire, of allowing desire to live freely. But I think I'm becoming a pretty good student of it. And I think we are students of desire wherever it does decide to lead us. And I think, you know, what I'm hearing from, from all of you is probably some of the first steps are to examine what our relationship to desire is, what our definition of desire is, uh, and the the willingness to not feel we have to somehow master desire, but perhaps always be a student or at least always be in the process of learning and practicing desire rather than thinking we're somehow going to master it at some point uh, and move beyond it because it's not really something to move beyond. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in the question I had asked about how can we listen more deeply, I think that also speaks to not being in a rush to necessarily feel we have to take action on desire, but to be willing when we do hear it calling to sit with it and to listen to what it has to say, to to listen with the body to see where it's coming from, because that may then indicate or, or give us a clue as to what kind of action to take or what form our action needs to take at that time. So 
once we have started to do that, what what have you found when you have allowed yourself to follow the call of your desire? What has been an indication to you that you have moved beyond the fear, the reaction against, the limitation, whatever it is? What is it that kind of indicates to you that you are starting to move beyond that and you're giving into the desire and you're starting to pursue it and allow it to be something that you are trying to manifest in your life? Um, so much of what uh, <clears throat> so much of what Mildred Lynn and, and uh, Madonna shared resonates with me in that what we choose to make it mean to follow our desire, to allow our desire. Uh, does it, you know, the fear of, oh my God, who am I if I allow this desire to manifest itself, or even that I have it? What, is, who, what does that make me? Uh, relinquishing the fear of that is so important. And uh, so for me, it's, Sitting with, sitting with the desire unsatisfied for a little while, and this is something that, that both Madonna and you, Heisey, brought up, letting myself actually feel the unfulfilled desire in depth helps me to refine just exactly what it is that I'm desiring. You know, like if I'm hungry, I can just grab something, or I can sit with that hunger and figure out what exactly is it that my body is hungry for. And I find that that process, the refining of my understanding of the nature of my desire, helps me to be very much more productive and much less fearful about satisfying it. Um, I guess if I can think about where desire has led me to this day uh, from from the point where I started to understand that if I put a lid on my desire um, that it was continuing to give me bad health both physically and emotionally that if I put a lid on desire, then I wasn't living authentically. My family was being shortchanged because I wasn't really who I believed I was. I think desire is absolutely critical uh, for us if we are determined to live authentically with integrity as we move through the days, months, and years. And the biggest challenge for me is turning down that voice that has always said to me, if you follow your desires, you will hurt people, you will cost yourself financially, etc., etc. So, yeah, it's, it's a big one for me. I found with desire that I had to put it in a context where it was okay. So I decided to make desire my friend. 
and also marry it with yearning. And in terms of yearning, it was a yearning coming from my soul, and it was something that didn't go away. So, so part of my understanding and reckoning with desire and, and coming to terms with it is learning how to trust it and making the conscious decision to trust it. And then when I trusted it a little bit, it would make me feel good. And I had to learn how to make that feeling of feeling good and connected to my heart more important than any external validation or non-validation. So it was the beginning of my path to disengage from maybe messages that I was brought up with or messages that I've internalized or things that simply weren't in my best interest. So the big kernel of of wisdom from my end, and maybe our listeners have found something similar, was to, number one, understand that, that this desire was not going to go away, that it was the answering to a yearning in my heart, and that the desire was worthy and actually, in my perception, more important than anything else anyone else had to, anything else people had to say simply because it was coming from my heart and it was true that's been a little bit of my journey and i think similar to what mildred was saying when we begin to give ourselves over to the desire and follow that call that we start to feel a sense of lightness we don't feel that it's a heaviness or a burden to follow it, to act on it, to pursue it. I think we also have a certain sense of certainty uh, in that we stop looking for, let alone needing, validation, approval, input from outside of ourselves to let us know that it's okay to do this, um, to let us know that, you know, I still like you, even if you're doing that or or whatever. We, We... move beyond that and we don't need any of that and we find that that becomes irrelevant because we know we're being true to ourselves and following the call where it's taking us rather than needing other people to weigh in and say that it's okay to do so or that somehow that call or wherever that desire might be is okay in some way. Uh, So as a a last thought, I, I would ask each of you what you either have learned in your own experience or just maybe intuitively, you know, suddenly get however this comes to you, um, what would you suggest is one thing that people could do today to begin to give themselves permission to actively choose and pursue their desire and where it's calling them? Um, What can they do to move from an emphatic no to an enthusiastic yes in response to the call of their desire. I see one thing that really helped me when I was on this path was to look for inspiration from other people who actually followed their desire. And I did go to the bookstore and I did go to the section that talked about people's lives and I did just pick a bunch of books and went and sat down in the comfortable chair and started to look at them. I decided within myself, if other people can do it, then I can do it too. But that was that didn't fill, fill up my tank. So I really needed to 
dive into more information in terms of the tools. Well, yes, they followed their desire, but how did they get from A to B? And I found books or perhaps online resources specifically relating to the person's journey, how they did it was wonderful to help me go step by step. So that's what I'd like to offer to our listeners today. And I see one of the things that I've done um, is it it relates to sitting with the desire unfulfilled. uh, And that is to actively walk myself through my fears by imagining fulfilling that desire and then really, really carefully and compassionately looking at myself and saying and looking at the world around me and how the world might react and even the negative stuff right so let's say let's say people react negatively but how does that square with how i feel having satisfied that desire uh and and this is where really getting to know the nature of the desire is so important because i what i found is that when i actually really go into the deep refined understanding of the desire and then I do that exercise I find that if it's a really if it's if it's something if I understand the desire clearly then the reaction from the world is never as negative as the satisfaction that I feel in satisfying the desire is positive so it's visualization for me getting to know the desire and then visualizing the consequences and the reaction of the world to me fulfilling the desire. Um, I, I really believe that we have an obligation to be happy. And for me, desire, um, acknowledging my desires, attempting to follow where they lead me, fulfills that obligation that I have. I know that if I'm not happy, then the people in my life are not happy. So what is the ripple effect that I'm creating by not following my desires? I've certainly counseled good friends. I've I've read, you know, many of the books that Mildred is talking about. I think that um, understanding uh, that desire is a healthy way to create uh, is really important and to for me when I don't follow desire it's also a physical reaction Uh, my heart gets smaller um, everything gets tight and then when I'm allowing myself to feel what that desire feels like I feel my heart get bigger it's warm um and I love that feeling. So I think it's really practice. It's just sitting with how will I feel if I acknowledge my desire, if I try to follow some aspect of my desire, how will that feel? And I turn to one of my favorite tools, the Tarot, to ask this question. Um, and the card that came up is the Page of Pentacles. And, you know, I think that that is a card that reflects much of what has already been said. Um, it's about grounding that desire 
and embodying that desire. So it's taking that time to sit with it, as John said, um, and allowing it to really become a, a part of you in a tangible sense so that it's not just some ephemeral idea. It's something that you feel in your body that is a part of you, and therefore you now need to express that or make it real in the world. Uh, so so look at what feels real, tangible, what is it that you feel you can embody in this moment, and that reflects what step or action that you can take at this particular moment to move towards the desire, to bring that desire into being. Um, Page of Pentacles also reminds us of being... <clears throat> being compassionate, being gentle with ourselves, giving ourselves a little bit of grace to move through things. We don't have to be in a hurry. We don't have to be in a rush to make it all happen tomorrow. It can unfold over time rather than something that just comes together all at once. Sometimes that happens, sometimes not, but it's just honoring whatever that process and timeline is. And it's being able to express our desire in the world in a voice that is true to who we are and that is reflective of something that is real and right for us, not something that is just a copy of what somebody else has done, not something where we're trying to simply mimic what we've seen has been successful for someone else, but is something that feels right and real and true to us so that the way it's expressed is also staying true to us. So with that, I would like to bring our conversation to a close. I hope that people listening will take this opportunity to stop for a moment today, listen to their inner self, their heart, their soul, to see what desire may be pulling them, calling them, tugging at them at this time. Uh, I would encourage you, if you feel so uh, inclined to check out Teethorn Coyle's book, Make Magic of Your Life, because if you're feeling that pull of desire at this moment, that's a great resource for being able to start working through that, listening to that, and putting that into action. And I will thank my uh, esteemed colleagues, John Carousella, Mildred Lynn McDonald, and our special guest, Madonna McGinnis, for joining me in this discussion here today. Uh, and stay tuned. Uh, later in the show, if you would like to get a reading, you have the opportunity to call in and uh, receive a reading. Uh, and if you would like to do that, you can get into the queue now by Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. Stay tuned. We will be right back.
listening to Revolution with host Ticey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with Ticey. Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest. Or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Food is alive. It is a being. It is a sacred being. Food is not just our vital need. It is the web of life. Vandana Shiva Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. 
I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Well, Linda, here we are with your monthly Living Well segment, and we find ourselves in February, kind of finishing up the winter season, looking forward to the coming spring season. And I'm I'm curious how you tend to think about this time of the year, what February kind of represents for you in the cycle of the winter season, uh, and, and some thoughts you might have about what people can think about to be in harmony with this time of year and this part of the season. All right, great. So I'm thinking that this is a time about exploring what the heck is going on here and how we can make forward movements in harmony with the earth, each other, and all living things. How we return, basically, from ego death to life, to regeneration of all that is sacred and realizing that we are too. There is actually nothing that is not it. And once we can learn to see past the distractions of the mind and free ourselves from it or understand it, perhaps, well, there is no real understanding of that mind, but to come to terms with it. There is a way of being that is natural and starts to express. Loving kindness, heartfelt community, generosity, compassion, gratitude, working together to create the life, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. And it all begins and ends within each one of us. Moving away from the sacred, the mystery, the magic, the earth, the heart has taken us to here. It's time to look elsewhere for our return, for our regeneration. And that place to begin is here and now. So when we look out into the world again, the action taken is without residue. For one realizes that there are no sides and that life is a circle. And on it goes. Action from no place to nowhere to everywhere. And that's kind of like one of those little koans or paradoxes, you know, I see something like that. So let the journey begin, for it is the end of winter, and it is still dark, and it is still deep, and inside is calling. This is where the soul hangs out, actually, in the deep, dark, rich, fertile, warm, inviting within in that darkness. It's time to listen, and much depends upon it as the world spins on. So how do we start to give back to the earth, to treat this life with honor and respect and the deep love and gratitude it deserves? This changes all of life. Today I'm going to share with you the heart breath as one of the ways. The other is simply living in gratitude for all that is this magnificent mystery. So for the heart breath, first here are a few things that you may or may not know about the heart. The heart is and has intuitive intelligence. It is the main organ of perception, not the brain. Your heart emits electromagnetic fields that change according to your emotions. Positive emotions may create physiological benefits to the body. This also benefits the immune system and our whole being. Negative emotions create chaos, while positive thoughts create order. But remember, out of chaos comes order. So it's not bad to be disordered, so to speak, but to be willing to look within. Revelations come from the heart and the brain working together in each of their perspective roles. 
So with the heart breath, we are giving and receiving. It goes like this. Standing on the earth barefoot is also a good way to do this, but not necessary. Focus on your heart. Feel your heart. Feel the flame within it. Envision the earth energy coming up your legs in a deep breath up to the heart. Let it swirl around in there, adding to your own heart flame and let it grow. Send it back down to the earth in deep gratitude. Then with your next breath, bring in all the heavens into your heart. Let it meet your heart flame and grow. Then send it back with deep gratitude and appreciation. Next breath, bring both the earth and the heaven into your heart. Let it build and enhance your flame heart. Then send it through your whole body and out into the world for all to feel and share and partake in. Keep doing this for as long as you like and see what comes to you. It might enliven your reality and that of the world and each other. This develops appreciation and compassion as side shoots that are almost lost to the program world of rugged individualism and heartless empty lives. Deep caring sees that everything is alive and is the essence of life made manifest in that form. It is the plants themselves that communicate with us their benefits. By our deep caring and treating all with the respect due to all of life, perhaps the time will come again when we can hear the voices of our companions here, our plants and animal friends, who have come to assist us and share in this journey. And as we move through the month, are there a couple of tips that you might have, specific things that people could use that relate to this time of year and that could help them to align to the energies of this time of year? There are. Um, I would like to share that still we are in the in the depth of winter, even though spring is kind of sparkling over here and trying to uh, enliven us. Uh, it's good to keep warm both inside and out. Stay hydrated because the extreme cold, like the people are having back east, perhaps uh, takes all the moisture out of us and the plants, our skins, our tissues. So drinking water is, is more important than ever, actually. Um, to stay warm inside, eat curries and winter vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, celery, leeks, make soups, use onions and garlic, ginger tea. Savor the deep, dark richness of your own inner world. This is the time to nourish that place by being still and listening within to see what changes need to be made and how life can move forward once again. It is a time of inward reflection. Take advantage of this and answer the call of your own soul. It is deeply rewarding on all levels. No matter how hard it may seem, it's always worth the effort. And as we take advantage of this last part of the winter, which still makes us want to sit by the fire and sit inside under a blanket, reading a book, watching a a movie, uh, are there anything you've come across of late that you might think would be 
worthwhile for us to investigate or to read or to look into? Indeed, there is. And the book that I would like to suggest this month is called Sacred Plant Medicine, The Wisdom of Native American Herbalism by Stephen Booner. It is, without a doubt, one of the deepest, most beautiful books that I've ever read, and it's nothing like what you would think it is. And that's where I'll leave you with, because it is, once you step into it, to me, it is so inviting and so revealing, and it it helps prepare the way for, for spring. When we understand about plants and communications and the heart and and deep things like this. It is a beautiful book. Sacred Plant Medicine, The Wisdom of Native American Herbalism by Stephen Booner. All right. Well, thank you for this month's insight and suggestions, and uh, hopefully that will aid people in moving through the month being able to live well in body, (laughs) mind, and spirit. Thank you, yes. And we will look forward to a, a, another insight, another tip next month as we move into spring for continuing our ever-unfolding journey of living well. <laughs> Thank you, hi And until next time, I wish you a good day and many blessings. Thank you. You too. All right. And remember... It's only a dream. 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 Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at Linda at Prestia.com. Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. At night they would go walking till the break in the day. The morning is for sleeping. Through the dark streets they go searching
revolutionary guest this month is Geraldine Beskin, the longtime owner of the 92-year-old Atlantis Bookshop in London. Located in the Bloomsbury District on Museum Street, two blocks from the British Museum, the shop is the oldest and most well-known occult shop in England and quite possibly the world. The Atlantis Bookshop was founded by magicians for magicians in 1922 by occultist Michael Houghton. Some of the most well-known occultists and witches have passed through its doors, including Alistair Crowley, Gerald Gardner, Dion Fortune, W.B. Yeats, and so many more. In 1962, Geraldine's father assumed ownership of the store. As a result, she grew up in and around London's magical world, absorbing its energy and learning from the people that came and went. At the age of 19, she began working in the shop and then eventually took over as owner in 1972. Due to family responsibilities, she sold the shop in 1989, only to return to London and repurchase it in 2002. Upon doing so, news spread quickly that Geraldine was back in town. Today, she and her daughter, Bali, own and manage the Atlantis Bookshop, which also publishes its own material under its imprint, Neptune Press, just as it did in 1922. Atlantis has become an important part of British witchcraft history. Lurking in its walls, there is a treasure trove of stories from times past. It is an artifact in its own right, and even a museum with Geraldine as its curator. The Atlantis Bookshop also sponsors workshops and launches books. Geraldine Beskin also works closely with the famous Museum of Witchcraft in Boscastle, Cornwall, England. Established by Cecil Williamson shortly after the repeal of the Witchcraft Act in 1951, the museum was originally located on the Isle of Man, then moved to the small fishing village of Boscastle Castle in 1960, where it has remained ever since. Like Atlantis, the museum has survived much change, including a devastating flood in 2004. The waters washed away much of the town and buried the museum's entire first floor in mud. Despite this devastation, the museum lost almost nothing, says Geraldine, who calls the cottage in which the museum is located magical. Geraldine offers lectures around the world on occult topics such as Women of the Golden Dawn, Alistair Crowley, the man behind the mask, and Manny P. Hall, the murdered mystic. So please join me in welcoming to the show today, revolutionary guest, Geraldine Beskin. And welcome, Geraldine, to the show. I'm very excited to let listeners know that you have winged your way here to California, all the way from London, undoubtedly just to do this interview. But no, I know you've actually come for PantheaCon, which is a conference coming up next weekend, which we'll talk about in a bit. So thank you very much for making this transatlantic voyage just to be here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I remember you very fondly from when we met at PantheaCon last year. You gave me a fabulous tarot reading, which I haven't quite lived up to, but the cards were right <laughs> as ever. So thank you. Well, thank you. Um, so uh, one thing, hopefully you realize that you've ha how storied of a life you have had just listening to that in that introduction. Um, and, you know, we mentioned the Atlantis Bookshop in London and one of the, the things that was said there in the introduction was that it was a store that was 
founded by magicians for magicians back in 1922. Um, So can you explain a little bit, what does that mean when we say by and for magicians that this store was founded? The two guys who started it were Paul Brunton and Michael Houghton. And they were both young Jewish men who um, were desperately seeking something, really. And they set up the shop, having come through theosophy in a way, uh, um, they were brought up as not particularly observant Jews, and then they discovered theosophy. That was very, very important to them for a very long time. And they set up a little shop, but if it was a sunny day, they shut the shop and go out in the park and look at the girls. They really were not serious about it in that, at that time. Then Brunton didn't use one of Michael's poems in one of his books, as had been agreed, and that split the friendship quite some time. Now, Paul Brunton spent the rest of his life kind of in transit, really. He never seemed to have settled down and had a proper home. He stayed for long times with other people, but he was a bit of a cuckoo. He liked to be in somebody else's nest. And Michael was much more of a steady character, really. Eventually, Paul Brunton said that he really should have included the poem as agreed, and the friendship fused back again then. Um, But it was Western magic rather than Eastern mysticism that attracted both of them, really. Um, As I say, Paul Brunton was very, very important because he helped bring words like meditation and yoga and those sorts of words are now so commonplace to the working man. Until then, they'd been rather in esoteric societies like like theosophical society. But because he had this direct experience of traveling and talking with Indian people, with Egyptian people, looking for their magic, then he brought that side of things to the West for the guy on the bus. There was nothing intellectual about his books. There was nothing difficult about his books, but they were absolutely gripping and very, very, very sincere. He was very much a spiritual man. Um, And so they say Michael stayed in our little room down, the shop moved around a bit, but then um, the room downstairs, all manner of things have gone on there because it's a room, it's a useful place to have meetings. (laughs) And all sorts of people have met and still do meet down there, really. And, And I'm sure, you know, when you say that, all sorts of things have gone on down there when people think of the occult world, the esoteric world, the world of witchcraft and all of those kind yep. of things. I'm sure they're imagining, you know, animal sacrifices and baby sacrifices and, and who knows what. So can can you give us a little bit of the history and lore of, of what's gone on in the store there? Well, at some point, my daughter and I are going to publish the untrue history of the Atlantis bookshop. <laughs> and we're going to do it as a parallel text. On one side, there is going to be the legend that people have told us has actually happened there. And the other side is going to be a much shorter page saying what really did happen. (laughs) Um, People have just come up with the most fantastical tales and sworn that they were there. And I know very well that they couldn't have been because, you know, they they would still be at school at the point that they were saying they were involved with things. Can you give us an example of just one of the the tallest tales you've heard? Well, um, we're meant to have uh, a kind of a trap door that leads to as a portal to Cthulhu underneath our basement. Like every other shop in the street must have one as well. (laughs) It's actually that you can hear the tube trains rumbling away underneath. Um, 
Another one was a man hung himself downstairs. Well, I would have noticed because I was there when it was meant to have happened. And, you know, I would have screamed loudly and got the ambulance and got the police and there would have been a hell of a hoo-ha about it. But it's just twaddle. It's just twaddle. And um, somebody who ran the shop for a while when... um, we'd sold it uh she wanted to be in a book of london ghosts and so she just made one up that <laughs> afternoon and that's caused us a great deal of embarrassment but oh no no all sorts of you know weird stuff is meant to have happened and we do get strange things just last week i had a couple of guys one had come from egypt where he's an archaeologist uh the other guy had just come from outside london um and they had intended to meet at some point but they just came into the shop within two minutes of each other and, and that wow. sort of thing that happens very often in ways we don't even count that as unusual because it's such a commonplace right. to us um, which but, I think is a good lesson for people we, if we actually pay attention we'll find that magic is around us in a very commonplace way all of the time it doesn't always happen in ways that are you know movie style or, or dramatic or that kind of thing it's just that people have lost that that sense of awareness or, or have stopped looking for it even. Yes, yes. And, and sometimes you can kind of conjure up the right person. Somebody asks a question, I have no idea of the answer. But the man who wrote the book that I would recommend to them wanders in. And so they're able to just give the answer to them directly and things like that. But you have to be open to the possibility of these things. Every day is full of signs and omens. If only we looked for them, really. You know? <coughs> Excuse me. And and I think part of the the tall tales and and mythology that has grown up around the 92 years now yeah. of the store being in existence is also from some of the very <clears throat> iconic figures that have passed through the doorways yeah. there. Uh, can you maybe just give us a, a little taste of the laundry list of of people that have graced the store with their presence and perhaps done things there that that people may know and people may also be surprised to hear have been there. Well, it still thrills me that the people who set up the Golden Dawn saw my <coughs> saw my shop being built. <clears throat> I love that. And the fact, you can only presume that they would have complained about whatever was knocked down, their favourite pub or whatever it was, <laughs> to make use of this new room for this new build nonsense that was going on. And but I love that fact that it, it was built in 1888, the, the, the GD started then, and that... So those people would have seen it. They probably would have come in out of nosiness. It wasn't an esoteric bookshop then. But they've touched my door handles, as it were, and I I, I do like that very, very much. Our, obviously, our most notorious customer is still Alistair Crowley, um, and I do various talks on him because I seem to be the only woman who does, and I just have a different take on him. He had a shocking early life, as everybody knows, but I list the things... <coughs> You know, everybody nowadays has had sex before marriage. An awful lot of people have taken illegal drugs. A lot of people have travelled quite extensively. And then you get on to things like how many books have you written? How many have you produced? How many have you spent, you know, gone to the most expensive uh, binders in the world for? And, you know, the, the list gets higher and higher and higher. But he was kind of a walking Guinness Book of Records. He couldn't fit in anywhere. And for all he could climb mountains, he could also stay in bed for three weeks because he just couldn't be bothered and he was very, very Libran at times. <laughs> and he was lovable and loathsome in equal measure. 
You know, I, I think he would have been a very embarrassing man to go to the pub with, but he would have been <laughs> fascinating for all that. So, so did you actually know him in person? Oh, me. No, I'm not that old. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you're not the first. I, I'll you're admit not I'm not. I'm not too aware of no, exactly he, when he, he lived. He died I'm in certainly... 19, he died in 1947, which was ah. quite a few years before I I came back to Earth. But but you did cross paths, I think, with him when you were very young. No, 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 no. Oh, I thought there was no. a story that you saw so him Gerald on the Gardner. stairs. Oh, Gerald I, yes, Gardner. My father yes. and Gerald Gardner ah. had had a meeting downstairs, and they came upstairs laughing together. And I didn't get introduced because I was just a kid, and Gardner was going off somewhere, and that was fine. And for years, I tried to find out if my father had been a Gardnerian, initiated into the Gardnerian witchcraft thing, because my mother I knew wasn't, because we have a family. Irish side of things um, but uh, Philip Hesselton sent me a couple of pages from uh, Doreen Valiente's diaries just in this last year um, where he, she'd been talking with him and he said that he didn't like Gardnerian uh, witchcraft itself because he wasn't into nudity and flagellation <laughs> but he obviously liked Gardner um, and then um, that he'd actually been with the traditional witches on the Channel Islands uh, just after the war, which we know he was there within the family. We know he was there. What I didn't know was that he was involved with the witches then. So I'm terribly, terribly pleased to have found that out about him. So that's uh, lovely. Can, can you maybe say a little bit? I think perhaps a lot of people are, are familiar with Gardnerian, um, but can you maybe speak a little bit about who the, the traditional witches are that you're referring to? Well, we have a family thing. Which my grandmother was a nice, respectable Irish Catholic woman brought up over in England. Um, and yet, she could heal people and she could heal animals. A lot of people can only heal one or the other. I'm not bad with animals, but I'm rubbish at people. I just <laughs> just got no great desire. I know it sounds almost politically incorrect to say so. <laughs> well, I've not got no great desire to heal people physically at all. Um I could do it kind of emotionally differently, but the laying on of hands and I would really would loathe to be a Reiki healer and all those sorts of things. It's just not my flavour, just not me. And she also told fortunes with playing cards. And I had to wait until I was nine for her to show me how to do it. And that last 18 months or so was absolute torture, I tell you. And then we have the Irish sort of law about various things, about herbs and times of year and bits and pieces like that. Now, my mother has it as well, and I do, and my daughter does. Now, my sister and my brothers didn't. They were quite fey in lots of ways, but they didn't want to embrace that side of their nature right. to that extent. Um, and by fey, you're, you're, you're actually referring to fairy. They were fairy-oriented or... No, no, this is pre fay This is pre-fashionable fay that goes on now. Oh. It's fay in the old-fashioned sense of the word. That they, um, I suppose psychic would do mm. as, a, as a close run thing, really. Um, but they had high, quite highly developed senses of intuition and things, but they didn't, they thought that it was just um, common sense. It wasn't coming from somewhere other that made them move through the maze in a different way. So, uh, so I, I think maybe one thing that we could uh, do for people listening is just 
what would be your definition of occult, especially how it relates or, or compares to, say, New Age or esoteric or witchcraft? Maybe they overlap, maybe there are differences, but when you say occult, and I know you've referred to yourself as an occultist, um, how how you define that word and what that word uh, represents? It, well, traditionally it means hidden. Um, increasingly it means hidden in plain sight, really. Um, but the, the the Western mysteries, there are you know there, there's ceremonial magic, there's witchcraft, there's divination, there's palmistry, there's all those sorts of things. They are the esoteric, the occult sciences, and before say the 1980s in some ways there wasn't the opportunity to belong to almost anything you wanted to belong to um you were invited to join a coven you didn't say i want to join therefore i'm joining there there was a much more of a process to be gone through than there often is now and you then studied that particular way and covens had their own particular strengths and failings. Sometimes they had a very good astrologer. Sometimes they had a very good ceremonial magician. That would give the dominant theme to that coven. Uh, then a lot of people don't like the idea of witchcraft. They don't like the idea of working with the seasons particularly. They far prefer the ceremonial way of doing things, which is more governed by astrology and by the intent you you do magic to a purpose with witchcraft you're acknowledging something the religion the witchcraft is a religion and magic isn't that's one of the big big differences um and so you know it, it isn't the case of never the twain shall meet but they have more in common than they often appreciate i think really but the um the witchcraft stuff has become very much more general that is the stepping stone into lots of other things now whereas once upon a time it wasn't it was something that you were moved by that you elected to become much more seriously in a funny sort of a way and then you have the whole wicker wicker you know pagan theme and all of that and people get hung up on what to call themselves and others rather than just getting on with it mm-hmm. and accepting that we're all kind of the same side of the blanket, that we should all be working together more than we actually do, I think. Right. And, you know, and so kind of playing off of that, it, it, to me, it makes me think the way you, you stated that it's like witchcraft now is the gateway drug <laughs> for people <laughs> into all sorts of other Things and and that's often what you hear from people that are very anti or religious. Uh, you know that that young people will get involved in witchcraft and that's going to lead to all manner of things. As if that's, I just find it silly, really. It gives people a structure, which uh, <clears throat> some people are surprised how much they want a structure in their lives. And I think that a lot of people aren't doing witchcraft as I would recognise it, really. But what they are doing is desperately trying to. And they're also, like any of the earth-based religions, like Hinduism, like Buddhism, they're working with the seasons of the year, they're working with the uh, rhythms of the year, and they are terribly, terribly, terribly important to us. Mm -hmm. All the major earth-based religions have a festival of lights at the end of the year, the the end of our calendar year, the beginning of the next one. 
We're not uncommon in that. It makes perfect sense. Right. Our shop, we can't see the sky from the shop. We see daylight, we can't see the sky. But I notice it particularly the winter solstice for about two minutes. Once we've had that, the weather usually changes. It usually gets quite windy and weird. But we also, it's about two minutes a day that the day gets that much longer. Now, if we can appreciate that right slap bang in the middle of central London with electricity all around us, then it's there to be seen. And it must have been just fantastic 100, 150 years ago where people didn't have have electricity. They had to get up with the lark and go to bed with the owl kind of idea, you know, that there was no choice about it. And the moon was so important as a way of lighting your way if you were out. These simple, simple, simple things. And immediately you get a structure. And, and by seeing them and working with them magically doesn't take away from a, a a sense of understanding their physical scientific aspect either, which uh, you also often hear from people is, you know, people that are involved in magic or esoteric things, oh, well, they're just superstitious and they obviously have no room for science and, you know, you can explain the moon away because it's there and this is why it changes and this is why it does this and that. But, you know, I, I think that people that are truly um, magical are the ones that are able to see both aspects of that and not just to see it as the physical science thing, but also see the magical energetic, you know, like the occult idea of what's hidden, but it's in plain sight idea. Yes. And also you have to, I mean, I love the fact that the neuroscientists are on to us, as it were. I still love the fact that we're 9,000 years ahead of us and ahead of them and they can't take it away from us. (laughs) They can give a fancy name to what the hell happens but stuff has happened. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Sorry, this cold. All cultures throughout the whole of, his, of history have had a spiritual life to them. You know, they have also all spoken with the ancestors. And I don't mean this in a provocative or a blasphemous or a difficult way at all, but the whole Jesus idea of coming back again is a, a bit great reincarnation story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it, yeah. it's it's old to say it, but it's still true that there, these things can't be denied. We are spiritual beings. Now, I know spiritual scientists, I know magical scientists, and you can't deny aspects of your personality just because of the degree you've got. I don't. I think that sets up a fundamental difficulty within you. But I'm all in favour of science. I really think it's quite, quite marvellous because I feel very, very smug because we were there first. <laughs> yeah, and, and science, you know, I mean, uh, I'm currently enrolled in a professional herbalism course, huh. but I, I've also worked, you know, magically with herbs and things as well, energetically. And, and um, you know, it's very interesting with science now, they act as if it's some great revelation. And what they're doing is they find scientifically that a plant is helpful for something or an herb is helpful for something in the body. And like you're saying, we could go back thousands of years to people that were already seeing it that way and working with it that way in two ways, both medicinally as well as energetically. Yep. But 
they're still seen as the the savages, the old people, the superstitious people, yeah. and science is saying, but now we have proof that it does this, and it's like, well, yeah, you're just you're just now scientifically telling us there's indication for what these people already knew without having to go through all of the scientific process to actually know it, and I think that connection and that understanding is something that we have gradually kind of maybe not lost, just become disconnected from. Yes, and the scientists in the West were quite happy <coughs> to go off and talk to the indigenous peoples of wherever and say, oh, you know, actually, you know, scientifically, this has got this chemical in it and that chemical in it, so of course it works that way. Didn't think to look at the people on their own doorstep who had been using herbs for all those centuries. Yeah, you know, Before the doctors were easily available, Every village, every street had a wise woman, had a woman who knew when to go and pick the stuff, when to dry it, when to keep it, when to use it fresh, you know, how it should be used. And that was what kept the populations healthy. Mm -hmm. That was just disrespected by the Western scientists. Yes. And I just want to mention for people listening, if you hear a bit of noise in the background, it's actually rain. Um, I'm located in California. We are in a severe drought for the past three to four years. And the sound of that for us is like magic and a miracle. So I, I, I apologize if, if there's a bit of sound in the background, but we are so thankful for it that I am happy to have it be a, a distraction. Um, and I think that also with science and, and with our our especially over the past couple hundred years you know that really skewing towards everything is about science and seeing things through the lens of science that we have also lost that sense of um wholeness the way that there are multiple facets and parts to things that all work together to to do something create something or offer something so for example with herbs what you were just mentioning science oftentimes will look for what's that one ingredient, that one chemical aspect, that one thing. And then they find it and they think that's what makes this so effective. And then they want to isolate it and they pull that out to put like in a supplement. And it, it loses that sense of it's a, a completely interconnected system. You know, with herbs, you learn right away that using a combination of herbs is more effective than just one single herb. Yes. And, you know, I think that it's that that disconnection from what you often hear talked about, like the, the, the web of interconnectedness or, you know, how we are all connected and all things are connected. And I think science has obstructed our view of that interconnectedness because it focuses so much and so hard on just looking for the one little element or aspect outside of its relationship to everything else. And also those things often work incorrectly because they've been isolated. Right. They were part of a whole support structure that tempered it when it was used naturally before. And so they've highlighted something, which was quite vital, can't be denied, but it wasn't the only active ingredient. It was that blending that was well, important. Which I think is one of the, the amazing things that one can reconnect with and, and, and rediscover when you start studying magic or, or esoteric pursuits of some sort is it starts to bring us back to that awareness, to that remembrance of the inner connection. So we start to both see that and work with things in that way once again without having to deny science versus simply seeing the other layer, the other facets that are there in addition to the science. 
Um, so, you know, and we talk about witchcraft being a gateway drug, um, <laughs> you know, and especially over the past, you mentioned maybe the 80s, um, and there's been this kind of resurgence of interest in witches and witchcraft and occult things. And, of course, you can't turn on the television now without every television show practically having a witch or a werewolf or a vampire or all three of them living together, if you want to yep. go to being human. Um What's your your view, your impression of this new generation of of witches and and people that are interested in and, and pursuing uh, witchcraft and magic and, and other esoteric things? I think it's good because people should explore whatever they choose to explore. You know, there's a huge interest in rock climbing and weird stuff like that. I mean, why anybody would ever really <laughs> want to do that mystifies me. But people have access to so much more now. But it's like, you know, for the last 25 years in England, our houses have been built without chimneys. So the rise and rise and rise of the tea light and the candle industry has just gone crazy because we're hardwired to need flame. Mm -hmm. Man has had flame forever in our lives. And those sorts of things that because of simple things like that being taken away from us, even our clocks and things being digital, not going clockwise, not going... You know, dear Silla Widdishins, there is a this there is a disconnect, and that's why people who are sensitive are then looking for something that's missing. And books on witchcraft are easy to find. Books on any aspect of the esoteric are easy to find. And the the Western way is that it's the way of the doer in a funny sort of way. It's not the Eastern way, the way of the mystic, which is one of passivity. Our whole society pushes us to be proactive about things. And that's why witchcraft kind of works with people. You know, you get the tools, you use the tools, it makes a kind of sense. And I think that that's really part of the, the why it's so very, very popular. Also, the people that are coming to it now were brought up on Harry Potter. Yes. And that was just so socially acceptable. Now, as a bookseller, I think that's a wonderful phenomenon because it got kids reading thick books without pictures again. But their parents read them and their grandparents read them to them as well. And suddenly everybody's talking about books and the the, the kids saw there was a world of mystery there. Now, I'm also delighted as an esoteric bookseller that they happen to be about magic. But basically, that literacy leap that happened then was just fabulous because it's a global phenomenon. And now television and the films push all the werewolf and witches and ghosts and stuff because they know there is a hunger out there. It's product as far as they're concerned. But again, people are lapping it up. And and do you find that the younger generation is is coming to it with a a true curiosity and a willingness to explore and see what magic and the esoteric aspects of things are? Or do you think that there's a lot of people coming in with a misperception and thinking it's going to be like Harry Potter where you wave a wand and see sparkles and then there's, you know, all of the the special effects that we're so used to seeing? We disappoint people every day that we don't just (laughs) go through the wall to get a sandwich from the cafe next door, you know, that we actually... Go out and do it properly. No, people do think. That Why don't these... you just use the trap door to wear Cthulhu? Isn't that a quicker <laughs> oh, route? Oh, but sandwiches are dreadful in Cthulhu. <laughs> oh, you really wouldn't want to eat more than one of those. But the, um, you know, there, there there is this Hollywood version of what magic is like, and people tend to think that because they've got all the trappings 
they are then a witch or whatever. But it's like all these things you've got to study for it. It's it, you've got the de- when you learn to drive, you've got the desire to drive. You've got the goal there, and then you get behind the wheel and you think, oh blimey, this is more difficult than I thought it was going to be. And then with practice, it gets easier, and then suddenly you're driving and it's good. You're doing it. Um, and do you find that people coming to it now are willing to stick with the process and really have the the the, pa- the patience, the attention span to stick with it, or do you find that they tend to dabble and jump from thing to thing and then move on to something else rather than really immersing themselves? Oh, some do, some don't. But I don't know what the fallout rate was like in the olden days, really. Mm. I know that people were more selective about who they would let into a coven. But nowadays you can set up your own one. You know, before you had to belong to a coven and then you were taught. Now you can just say to your mates, come on, we'll go around my house on Saturday night and we'll do some stuff and we'll call ourselves the most fabulous coven in the universe coven and we'll <laughs> we'll get on with it and we'll do it from there. And that's great. Because that, that, that coven must be located in Soho. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but I think if, you're, if your heart is pure, then them upstairs will not give you any grief for it. You know, you, you can play as much as you like. One of the re- where I struggle a bit is that it's now a hot topic in the, the world of academe, as they call <laughs> it. And you get people who are joining covens quite blatantly to get their dissertations. Mm. And they are citing people who are two years ahead of themselves and because they have to use other academics. They don't know that they are not being taught the inner beating heart of witchcraft as a religion. They are being taught... You know, it was a Thursday, not a Wednesday in 1755 that such and such happened. But they're not being taught, (coughs) excuse me, the why or the how of it. They're not even being taught to be good, respectful ritualists either, really. There are things that are being talked about in these covens that really shouldn't be. They're for the pub afterwards, but they're happening in circle. And so there is not, you know, it's sloppy now, and it wasn't before. So, you know, a number of years ago now, we put on, my daughter and I put on a day to commemorate the 20 years since Alexander's, the, um, who uh, set up the Alexandrian witchcraft thing in London. It was 20 years since Alex had died. And we, we set up a day. And there was a call for some not magic to be done. And various people who'd been with Alex since the early days, you could see their collective idea of, oh, God, how do I do it? Can't roll over. If you will, I will, sort of thing. And then they did some spectacular cord magic because they were like well-trained dogs in a way. They had been trained. They did know how to do it. And the potency of uh, what they did then. And there were people there who were initiate, there were people there who weren't, there were people there. For whatever reason, they were there. It was a very big party, basically. But the intensity, they saw magic happen. And magic happens with intent. Like a prayer being answered, it's the, it's the intent. You send it up there and you hope for the best. And they, they saw this thing constructed which was just a revelation to lots and lots of people but that generation was well trained and I don't think that that sort of training happens often enough now at risk of showing my age (laughs) so uh, 
you well, I I don't know if you became exposed to this world of the occult and the esoteric things when you were in your late teens, early twenties, when your father bought the store, or yeah. if there had been previous exposure or talk about it within your family. Um, but since that time to today, how have you seen the occult world evolve and change? How is it different now compared to how you've seen it? progress from the 1960s, I think it was, through today. Yeah, I was a proper young kid when Dad first got involved with the shop. Uh, and so it was uh, early 70s when I started working there. And then there was much more of an Eastern influence. Loads of people were still hippies. Uh, the smell of patchouli hung heavily in the air. <laughs> and uh, there was this free-flowing of ideas. I went to high Ashbury yesterday because a woman of my era could not, you know, and uh, I, it was as I expected it to be with the passage of time, which was fine. But then there, uh, there was this feeling of sharing, which was quite interesting, really. Um, so that is a big change, and that everybody's idea was valid. And that um, you may not want to do it like that, but that was fine. Now, people seem to be in camps much more. They're, they're in opposition to each other instead of all being part of the same big circle. And I do think that that is a shame, really. I think that the access all areas stuff is very, very good in lots of ways. And people can find out about anything now that they want to do. And that is also good. But the the Internet has been... A bad thing in lots of ways, I think, because there are a lot of people out there who are just barking mad, <laughs> and yet they have big presences. There are other people who just spend their time talking badly about whatever positive idea has been put out, and I think that's a great, great shame. You, you, there are people who now have withdrawn almost completely from it because things, you know, there have been rows created when nothing was meant and it's a great disappointment that but basically people could and should get hold of whatever they like i think really and i like the fact that they can now and not just witchcraft any aspect of the western mysteries i think is good uh, so i mentioned at the beginning that you're here in the san francisco area for pantheacon yep. uh, which is an annual conference that brings together like what you were kind of talking about the large circle of pagans, if you want to just use that term ever so yeah. broadly and loosely. Uh, I would encourage anyone listening to consider attending at some point because it's it's four days of being able to just expose yourself and experience anything and everything practically under the pagan rainbow of, uh, of things. Uh, and you're going to be giving a couple of talks. Do you want to maybe just mention the the presentations that you're going to be giving? Yes, one is Alistair Crowley, Lady Frieda Harris, and the development of the Thoth Pack using Crowley letters that I own. Um, and by pack, you mean the the Tarot deck? The Tarot deck, yes, yes. Um, so that that's using uh, coming at it from the inside, really, as it developed month by month. Uh, you know, and the fact that there was a war on and the shortages get mentioned of, you know, the paint she had to use and things like that. It was because there, there was nothing else around. She would have used better ones if she'd been able to get them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the one. And then the other one is uh, a tarot tour of London, which I did using 22 of our major sites for the 22 major cards. 
And I did it for the London Tarot Conference a couple of years ago, where we started off up the London Eye, which is our Wheel of Fortune, <laughs> and uh, pointed out a few sites from there. Then we got rained off. So we all dived back to the room underneath the shop. And I did the rest of it as a PowerPoint presentation. Well, I've worked that, so it's just a PowerPoint presentation now. And that's been great fun because I think anywhere can give you, wherever you live, your local area can give you the 22 majors. I'm absolutely convinced of it through stupid names, through local lunatics who live wherever they lived or wherever there's a good cook shop or whatever it happens to be. You can make the 22 majors out of that. And I, I just want more people to do that because yeah. it was marvellous putting it together because I didn't choose, other than the Wheel of Fortune and the Tower of London as the tower, I tried not to use the obvious sites to suit the various cards. So it was a good exercise. I enjoyed putting that together. Uh, so mentioning again Alistair Crowley in the the research and studies and different things that you've done. Uh, I forget, have you have you written a book? No, not him? yet. No, uh, no, too busy with that um, stuff. But what would you say is one of the most fascinating anecdotes or aspects of Aleister Crowley that you've discovered or come across that, that really has just struck you as like, wow. What I still am enormously impressed by every time is that he was just a phenomenal writer. And he was a very brave and very early gay poet as well. He hasn't been acknowledged in that scene nearly as enough as I think he should have been, really. And to be out and proud then when it was illegal <coughs> to be homosexual for so long in England. I mean, it was 1956 before somebody dared stand up, stand up in court and say, yes, I'm a homosexual. People have gone to prison for indecent acts and various things like that. But Crowley sometimes... Uh, well, he definitely did suffer because if somebody wanted to, sue, he wanted to sue someone for defamation of character. Their solicitors just had to hold up some of his poetry and say, "You say that about our client, and we'll just present this, and you go to jail." The end. So I think he was very courageous in lots of ways, and things that we do now automatically, we think we have an entitlement to live our own lives, and yet. Certainly in his day, people didn't think that. Mm. And there, there have been the generations who, who have read his books. You know, and The Great Beast was a fabulous title. It was a very good, bad biography of him, which was a good read for the guy on the bus again. And it tiptoed through the highlights of his life in a, a very uh, prissy kind of a way. But it kept his name alive during those years of darkness, and people could, the real people could see, sensible people could see that actually he did extraordinary things, and he he um, was extremely clever. He was extremely brave. He was utterly vile as well. He did you know terrible things, and but he um, he couldn't fit in. He couldn't conform. There was nothing in his makeup. And then in the life he chose to lead, there was no way he could then conform either. So I think I think his courage is the thing, oddly enough, that comes to me, and, and the beauty of his writing. And if, if somebody was unfamiliar with him, what would you suggest as kind of the first place to start to discover Aleister Crowley? I'd suggest a book by Lon Milo Duquette. 
I oh, think yeah. that Crowley's own books are not the place to start with Crowley, <laughs> bizarrely. <true. laughs> yeah, if you've never been exposed, you read them going, I don't even know what it's saying here. Yeah, no, don't, don't buy the Book of the Law as your first book on Crowley, whatever you do. You just, it's just gobbledygook. Uh, and, uh, you know, magic and theory in practice, absolutely fantastic. I'd still take that on a desert island with me um, with a copy of uh, Dion Fortune's uh, Mystical Kabbalah mm. bound in the back. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, no, he, he, Eddie, as I say, I think Long My Lady Kitts books are the best way in, quite honestly. <laughs> um, and, and I remember when you were here last time, you were doing a presentation, and, and I just wanted to ask, because I think this is someone who also people perhaps don't even know who it is, let alone know anything about. Um, who Who is Manly P. Hall, the murdered mystic? Well, he was Mr. Marvelous, really, I think. He only ever charged a dollar to hear him speak. He wrote, well, 350 books and pamphlets and things like that. He lectured endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. And he did more to keep the ordinary person in America spiritual than anybody else during the last decade, the last century. And as part of the bicentennial um, celebrations, he was made a living monument because wow. of that. He also helped shape the whole ethos behind um, Star Trek, because one of the <coughs> excuse me, one of the people that wrote that was a great fan of his. He was a faddist. He was a proper Californian health food nut, way, way, way back in the day. Um, and he was. He he said that he wasn't a scholar, but that he was a teacher, and he had an extraordinary mind whereby he could read things from hundreds of years ago and just synthesize them so people understood them. He had that common touch to that extent. And the Philosophical Research Society is still here in California and his books are still available. But <coughs> excuse me. it's only 25 years since he was murdered, but he's kind of been forgotten about and he absolutely doesn't deserve to have been. Was he was he murdered in relation to the work he does and that kind of thing, or was it just a, a random murder? Oh, it was his, his his secretary seems to be the guy that did it, and he was um, a chancer, shall we say, really. And Manly Hall was very old by then, and he took he took over the uh, running of the show and made you know the old man really couldn't fight against him to that extent um, then the uh, man who did the inquest didn't notice that Manly Hall didn't have a thyroid, a thyroid gland or um, something else he'd had taken out 40 years beforehand, didn't notice that but he was the man who did the O.J. Simpson trial Oh, so you know, it, it wasn't terribly well managed yeah. in the, in what happened after <laughs> his death So, uh, but the, the man then died horribly so I guess he got his just desserts in a funny sort of way. And uh, and again, if if people were curious to find out more, where, where would you say is a good place for people to start to discover Manly P. Hall? Uh, I'd go to YouTube. I think oh. there are various lectures and things like that up there. And uh, of him, of him, I mean of him. him talking. He'd sit there and he'd just talk for forty minutes, and then he'd get up and say, "That's all, folks," and wander off the stage again. He <laughs> he he was very relaxed. He was just. 
uh, quite fantastic, really. In, in, and um, he, he, as I say, that's a that's a way, a stepping stone into him. And then, you know, there are pamphlets and books and various things like that available. And his his great big book was Secret Teachings of All Ages. And in that, what he says in a, a paragraph, anybody else would take a chapter to explain. Mm-hmm. But it was it, it's an enormous and fabulous and deeply, deeply, deeply useful book. But again, not the one to start with. Start with something that interests you. He wrote on Masonic stuff. He wrote on all aspects of man's life here on earth, but with a deeply spiritual spin to it. Uh, so, you know, certainly over the past 10, 20 years or so, we've seen the, the rise of the Internet and often to the detriment of things like physical bookstores and, yep. and other types of stores. Um is there still a place, what would you say is the role of, of an actual occult or esoteric bookstore in this digital age? The role of any independent shop is to treat their customers like people. We answer the phone for Amazon because people need to know stuff. People need their questions answered. And especially when you specialize like we do, any highly specialized shop has specialized knowledge. And that is the thing that gets lost really and it's um you may save a little bit of postage you may save a little bit on the book but you lose an awful lot more from what you could gain by using the local shops really there's a sense of community in lots of ways it's all the intangible stuff that actually makes life a good life to lead and things like you know going into a shop and you meet a school friend you haven't seen for 30 years or whatever it is those sorts of weirdnesses can happen there, whereas you may look them up on Facebook and it, it's just not quite the same somehow. So you know, they, they, any independent shop should be supported. You know, to you know, to I can't remember the phrase. What is it? You know, about shop local. Uh, there's uh, two parts to that. I can't remember what the other part is. You know, think small, shop local, something like that. Yeah. And it's very, very important for society, for community. And I think especially when a store like yours that that specializes in this particular type of of literature and 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 information, um, it's it's something that can't just be learned or experienced by reading about it. You're not just going to pick up the book you're going to read on the plane for your trip. No. You know, it's something that you have to put into practice. And being able to ask questions and, and really, I think, that communal aspect, being able to be around other people that are also putting it into practice to either see how they're doing it, to compare notes, to ask questions, and maybe yeah. surprise yourself by having something to offer that you didn't realize you you knew and, and had really kind of started to to embody that, you know, you don't notice when you aren't around other people. Yeah, um, but somebody else in the shop does pick up on that, you see. And our job is to give guidance without insistence. Mm-hmm. That's the the skill of proper, you know, proper staff to yeah. that extent. That we don't say this, this is exactly what you need. No, we say somewhere on that shelf should be something that would interest you, which is quite, quite different. And then if people say, should it be this one, this one, or this one? Then you can explain this one's too difficult, that one's too easy, and that one really doesn't have anything at all to do with what you thought you might be interested in. Which can't 
as effectively be done no matter how good the algorithm is that gives you, you know, here are the recommendations that we have based on what you've purchased before. That, I think, starts to become too bubble-like. You know, it's it's the same problem with Facebook. The more you like things, the more you just see in your newsfeed everything that mimics or reflects what you already think rather than seeing any sort of real variety of perspective and that kind of thing. Yes. Um, And so that, that ability to point something out to perhaps say, go look on this shelf or look at this book that would have never come up otherwise yeah. is, is one of those really important Oh, facets. it is. And the whole thing of witchcraft and magic is that you it, it's they're designed for you to assert your own independence. You should reach the point where you bristle at what Amazon thinks you should, will like. You know, I deliberately don't like any of that because they've told me I should. <laughs> No, thank you. I'll make my own mind up. And again, that's the benefit of open shelves. You know, you think you want a particular book. You know you want that book. But you didn't know that there was this one or that one or that one, which actually deals with what you want to be you know, want to be working with so much better. But you would never have Googled that title. You would never have known that title existed. So, it, yeah, shops are useful in various ways, really. They give you choice. And I think you know, we were talking about this uh, for a slightly different topic um, before we began, but I think it also is a place that creates a safe space for people to come to where they can explore, where they know that if they ask about this or say that this is what they're into, nobody's going to judge them or, or look at them oddly. You know, I, I work at a metaphysical store here in Oakland and so often people will come in, even to to a store like that, and they'll say, I know this is a really weird question. Yeah, yeah. And I'm always like, there are no weird questions, especially in here, because, yeah. you know, that's part of the, 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 the importance of that kind of space is we, we leave weirdness outside the door. Yes. And you come in and everything is possible and you can ask about and we can talk about anything and everything that you might be uh, might be catching your eye or catching your awareness in some way yes and, and also you know the weird questions are the good questions because you don't mm-hmm. know what you know until you get asked it and you don't know what you don't know until you get asked yeah. it either but there's also the thing that, that coming into a shop and well you know it's the old job that the old barmaids used to have really it, it's a, a kind of a kind of confessional to some yes. extent and people being able to say, I don't know if this is right, but this is what I've been doing, uh, is, is very useful to them because they can be sort of turned around and just sort of knocked into shape slightly. So that if they did this, it would be better than carrying on doing that. And that isn't in books. That's through experience. And, and you know, local shops are important to that, especially esoteric ones. Yes, and especially in, in esoteric kind of shops. You know, working in those is not for everyone because, you know, it's not like working at the department store where people are going to come in and say, hi, I I wanted to buy this shirt and, you know, oh, and I just found out I have cancer. Yes. You know, whereas in an esoteric shop, people will come in and, and they'll lead, you know, with, I just found out I have cancer. Yes. And we'll say, go and buy yourself a nice new shirt. You know, <laughs> right. yeah. Yes. You know, but but working in those kind of places, and I think that goes to kind of the safe space. And people feel it when they come into those shops yep. because immediately they are talking about, expressing, asking about things that are deeply personal, yep. deeply emotional. Yeah. And you know, and that's why it's not for everyone if if someone is not prepared to deal with those kinds of things. 
and similarly being able to then perhaps point the people to something that could be magically helpful or even just something that is comforting, whereas yes. the person at the department store may be like, um, well, we have that shirt in another color. I don't know if that'll help your cancer, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know. it also, you have to go to work to work in a shop like that. Yes. You can't have a day off from it, as it were. That's not fair. You you have to be there in the moment all the time. That's your responsibility. You know, our customers are customers and they are friends as well as we get to know them. They're never punters as you get in some of the esoteric shops. That is so disrespectful. That is utterly vile. And that really will not do. Dion Fortune said that only the best is good enough for them upstairs, as it were. And only the best is good enough for people here on Earth as well. We, 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 Marley and I both feel that very, very, very strongly. You can't be dismissive of people. You've got no right to be. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so in addition to the bookshop, yeah. another large project that you have been involved with is the British Museum of Witchcraft. Is that, is that the proper name? No, it's, it's sort of tangential. It's the um, the Boscastle Museum. I was, um, I've spoken for them and I know the previous owner and I know the current owner and I shunt thousands of people down their way year <laughs> on year. And we, ha- we, we uh, had the great pleasure of launching a book about Cecil Williamson who set up the Museum of Witchcraft is just coming out in paperback now but we we launched the hardback there and so the, we had Steve Paston who wrote the book as Cecil Williamson and I was Gerald Gardner and we did a kind of a hail fellow well met thing because we knew where in the shop they would have physically shook shaken hands oh, wow, yeah. so that was a you know a silly but very exciting moment really um so I'm very, very fond of the museum. I think it's a marvellous thing that it exists. It's got new people in charge of it now who manage it, and they seem to be doing a jolly good job. But it's so far away. I tend not to get there, really. Mm. But it, it's a great inst- you know, great institution. And the um, Simon C- Costin, who owns it now, has got great plans for it to de- expand and develop over the next few years. Yeah, I feel I, I saw an article very recently that Probably. They're, they're going to be... Um, renovating and expanding and, yep. and creating a, a, a temporary exhibition space for, for rotating exhibits and all yes. of that. So. Which I think is a good idea, really, because yeah. things get a bit stale otherwise. You just have to do that. And and just for anyone listening, can you just say where where is it located so they know where to look if they were going to it's, England? It's in Boss Castle in Cornwall, which is the far, 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 far left of the British Isles, as it were. And it's still one, maybe two-day ride to get there. It's a beast of a place to get to in lots of ways. It's just a long way away. Um, the roads are twisty-turny, hairpin bends, and entirely enchanting. But um, it's slow because of it, really. Um, and it's open from Easter till the end of October. Uh, every year and it's it's like a little t- doctor who's little tardis thing you, you you go into this little cottage and then it just spreads out in strange ways you don't know which direction you've gone into because there's the cliff stopping you one way and there's the harbour stopping you the other so how on earth did it take two and a half hours to get round it it's just <laughs> it is a, a, a place of great magic and fascinating things <coughs> It's got a painting by Austin Spare. It's got loads and loads and loads of jars of herbs and 
odd bits and pieces of things. It's got Gerald Gardner's typewriter, I particularly remember. It's got a mark on the wall about five feet high that shows how high the water came in when it got flooded. The village has been beautifully reconstructed, so you would never know that that it was new. It still looks like a proper little old village. Um, and all the destruction has gone now. It's got a new bridge as well, because one of the problems... Is basically, there were two uh, rivers coming down two different valleys. They came into one river that led into the harbour. And, of course, nothing had got anywhere to go. So it flooded the village, took cars along with it. Cars got rammed under the under the bridge, and that caused further chaos. So now the village has a new bridge. So that sort of thing can't happen again. It was just a freak of freak of nature that it ever did happen, really. Um, but the village is very, very charming. And uh, the, the the Witchcraft Museum is obviously far and away the best thing there. <laughs> yeah. Was there a particular reason that that location was chosen? I'd never asked. I really don't know. No, couldn't tell you. Well, then it's a mystery for us and you, our listeners to, to, to embark upon. You've stumped me. <laughs> I shall find out. So as we move to the, the close of our conversation uh, here, there is uh, something I do with every guest. Um, and one is I have a question to ask you to respond to from a previous guest. They didn't know who it would be asked oh, to, oh. Uh, but it will be a question for you to just you know, in the spur of the moment, give give your answer to. And then I'll ask you for a question that will be posed to a future guest. Okay. Uh, so the uh, question that I have for you is from my guest last month, which was Eric Dupree. Uh, and he asks the question, what are you doing for yourself that is of benefit to others? What I'm doing for myself is acknowledging that I just love researching instead of doing it in hasty moments and reading till late in the night and all the rest of it. I'm actually timetabling research time because the writing that I do, the the talks that I do are then useful to others and acknowledging that that is a terribly important part of me and that a day away from work still doing that sort of stuff is as legitimate as being at work in a way um, is what I'm doing for myself so that's a nice question to be asked because it's taken me a long time to admit that um, it wasn't just a side issue to me it's actually really quite central to me putting I do biographical talks because I don't want these people to become faded away from memory you know that they I don't want them to be people saying oh yeah isn't he the guy that and just having one or two facts about them people should be acknowledged our and they are our direct magical ancestors they should be acknowledged and so I'm doing a small part towards that um, yeah excellent and so what question would you like to ask for a future guest to respond to well with no prior knowledge of this what immediately came to mind was uh, there's a, a song by Heather Smalls which is What Have You Done Today to Make You Feel Proud oh yes I know that song and so maybe that is a, a good question because it makes you stand tall and think I'll, I'll behave nobly with a bit of luck excellent well I know I'll look forward to hearing how my future guest responds yeah. to that <laughs> And I encourage anyone listening, perhaps, just take a moment to think for yourself how you would respond to that question as well. 
So I want to say thank you very much, a thousand gratitudes for being here today, uh, for traveling. I know you just traveled in the past couple of days, so for you know pushing through jet lag or, <laughs> and 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 the rain to come from San Francisco down to to where we're recording this. Uh, and and so thank you very much for for doing that and for being here and sharing this. Um, is there any particular projects or things that you want to mention that you're working on? And also perhaps you can give the the contact information for the store and for you if people were curious about um, either finding out more about the store or if they're going to be in London going to visit. Right. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've, I, I have enjoyed this. So it's, uh, it's been good to do. Um, the the atlantisbookshop.com is the um atlantis at the atlantisbookshop.com is the best way to contact us at the moment because our website has been down for many months as we knew it would be and when in our heads we knew it would be down for twice as long as people said it would be and we're way past that so just email us it's just so much easier and if we can help, if we can help then we we will that, that's the thing and you um, do have a facebook page as well can no, people we do. send a message through there yes, as well yes yes i'm not allowed to go anywhere near that i'd be far <laughs> too indiscreet <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so there, there's a, there's a Facebook with Atlantis Books Facebook page. Uh, you can also see me um, on YouTube with the Sam Mendes uh, Penny Dreadful series. Why I had to cut short my really? Oh, I love that show so oh, much. Well, why I had to cut short my trip to California last year was that I got called back to do. They wanted an expert on 1890s magic, and I got called back to do that and interview with Helen McCrory in the shop. And uh, so that went up in December sometime. So a whole day's filming. I just look shockingly jet lagged, as you would expect. And my lost luggage arrived during filming. But the shop looks beautiful. <laughs> That's a bit that counts for me. And Helen was lovely to work with. So that, that was great. So uh, so, so you, are you just consulting or are you actually appearing in the show itself? Uh, I'm up on YouTube as a support material. Ah, thing. okay. Yeah, yeah, a little so. behind the scenes yes. DVD bonus kind yeah, talk, of thing. Yeah, talking about that. So, uh, well. Yeah. I'm, well, that's exciting because oh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed they just announced that they've pushed back the premiere for the second season to May. Ah. Uh, you know, but oh, that show is so incredible. It's really good. Genuinely, it's really a very, very, very good show. Yeah. And I love the fine, obsessive mind of one person writing it. So and I think you've had other things that have come to, to film and things at the bookshop, haven't you? Yes, yes. And I, I when I go back this time, my again, my timing is dependent on this. There's, um, there's a uh, a, a group called uh, Killing Joke and I've known the lead singer for years and years and years and years and years and so he, their film is at the British Film Institute and on the 19th of, of January and um, I, I'm in it and uh, but uh, Jimmy Page is as well and I think our bits are going to be fairly much close to each other because we're talking about similar subjects so I'm quite excited to see that. But that was done years, a filmed years ago. I mean, I, you know, I had short grey hair then. I've got long <laughs> red hair now. But uh, it was uh, so that that's. I, normally I do media stuff and then I don't look. But the penny dreadful stuff I did have to look, and I am going to go to the British Film Institute for this one. Yes. So yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yes. Well, thank you. And uh, for those that are listening. Uh, stay tuned. Coming up, we have our astrology update for the month. And following that is your opportunity to call in or Skype in from the show page uh, to receive a reading. 
And you can do that either on the show page, you can Skype in with the little Skype button, or you can call 646-716-5510. And I would encourage you to do that. You'll want to get into the queue before 1230. The live stream may cut out at 1230, but as long as you're in the queue, the show will continue and you would still be able to get your reading as long as you're already connected in. So my thanks to Geraldine Beskin and stay tuned. Coming up is the astrology update, followed by your chance to get a reading. to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hello, Space Cadets. Welcome to another installment of the Astrocast. Let us begin by discussing a future vision, the emerging politics of water. It's February, and that means that the heavy energies, or I should say the heavier energies of heavy Capricorn, will begin to lift somewhat, and we come more into the renewal offered in Aquarius. According to the Babylonians, the water bearer represented the renewing rains of spring. And the gestating vernal season offered in the symbol set of Pisces, at least in the northern hemisphere anyways, 
A preponderance of water energy dominates the symbolic landscape this month, as we have Uranus in Pisces and Neptune in Aquarius forming a mutual reception. Further, both Mars and Venus will be in Pisces and form hard aspect to each other later this month. Finally, the symbol of the realist, Saturn, which entered Scorpio in late January, gives us the very reality of emerging issues with water access and the politics of water driven both by climate change and by a burgeoning human population. Saturn deals with social structures and Scorpio works with themes of collective power. It literally becomes the reality of water politics. While the issue of water are only currently minor with the prospects of climate change and growing population converging, this vital resource will become a more pressing issue in the years ahead quite likely forming much of the international agreements we make collectively and further spurning technological innovations having to do with water. With a symbolic universe mirroring the issues of water, this month of 2015 could signal the beginning of a political discourse on water that will grow in intensity in the years ahead and correlates very well with current outer planet transits of watery signs. February begins and ends in a Gemini moon placement with the full moon on the 2nd being in Gemini and the waxing full moon on the 28th also being in Gemini. This is a very active lunar placement that encourages us to evolve our ideas of what is held sacred. Take this moon to begin a journey where a change of heart and mind can begin towards a more sustainable cultural ethic, which Neptune in Aquarius says we can, and use the dream to spur us on the path, Uranus and Pisces will deliver the technologies and innovations to make it possible, especially as they pertain to water. Here then begins the month-long laundry list of symbolic happenings. Interesting that laundry is a vital human activity that requires water, but I digress. <laughs> February 1st, we get a full moon in Gemini, which converges with a Venus conjunction to Neptune. Both happen to be occupying the sign of the human collective and also the sign said to be the futurist, Aquarius. This is a unique placement in that the two energies fuse into one frequency. In a future-oriented vessel, and Neptune is the higher octave of Venus, which is to say that even in hard aspects, this combination works miracles. Here's how it could be said to shape the psyche. It's the dream of a sustainable future anchored in ec ecological and technological innovations and human global cooperation. It can now be a dream shared by, a mass, by the masses. This one is for the 99% and makes the diplomatic agenda geared towards creating the matrix of a sustainable collective future. There is some word of caution here about separating fact from fiction and refining the process, but this opens the way. February 2nd sees a sun sextile to Uranus. The sun occupying the realistic Saturn-ruled sign of Capricorn and Uranus in Pisces signals that now is a time when social institutions can undergo innovation and revision and with any luck can align with a brave new world in which crisis becomes opportunity. It will give a radiance to sudden changes and ideas that have major social implications. Granted, this is all about self-fulfilling prophecy. It requires we believe it can be this way and then doing the legwork. February 4th, Jupiter retrogrades back into Cancer. 
Jupiter reviews the work it did while moving through the maternal sign. Perhaps it is here that humanity can reconcile itself to planetary limits and reestablish its broken ties to the planetary mother. February 5th, we will see Mercury sextile Saturn. What happens when two forces align and bring out the best in each other? Well, isn't that what we call sex? This is, in essence, what happens when this aspect forms. In this case, with Mercury and Capricorn and concerning itself with realistic ideas and being in a Saturn-ruled sign, the mind is hyper-focused on pragmatic concepts. When Saturn enters the mix, they are more likely to collapse into reality and become lived experience. Take those practical solutions to salient problems and apply them. Collectively, it could mean thinking moves to dealing with problems surrounding society and its interface with natural systems, and how collective power can shape futures. February 6th, we'll see Sun opposing Jupiter. There's a tendency here to overdo and expand beyond sustainable limits. It is, in fact, a perfect metaphor for our cultural obsession with endless growth and the accelerating pace at which we are altering our habitat. Let this aspect forming in our metaphoric language be a reminder of that and that nothing can grow forever, especially in a closed system, which is what Spaceship Earth is. On the global scene, perhaps we may begin to take account of some of the egregious damage that our economic model is creating and begin to work towards alternatives. February 8th, Venus will sextile Pluto. This aspect typically signals relationships and alliances that deeply transform the collective and those involved in them. Perhaps this day marks an event that begins the beginning of a new direction for the human family. Individually, it says we have a keener understanding of people's motives, especially those closest to us. Following on the heels of that, Venus will conjunct Chiron on February 9th. And will ask us the question, can we use technology to heal the deep collective wounds of the human heart? Venus conjuncting Chiron asks us this profound question. Can we build a bridge between disparate people and end old enmities and vendettas? Can, be, can technology be part of that process? Can be, humanity be united in working towards a future vision of a sustainable and beautiful future? Two days hence, on the 11th, Mars will enter Pisces with the possibility of water wars. This could signal the first major debates over burgeoning water issues, especially, especially pertinent to those of us in California as we are facing a five-year drought. February 16th, the sun enters Aquarius. The focus turns to the future, to the higher uses of intelligence and to how the world's resources can be shared by all in a human commons. Science in service to nature and technology in service to humanity. February 17th, Venus enters Pisces. Venus is exalted here and gets everything she ever wants here. She wants eternal love and effortless connection. It is the deepest human yearning to love and be loved. And it is here that the passage door opens to allow this to be. February 19th, we will see Mercury sextile Saturn once again for the second time in February. 2015 has been off to an auspicious start in that the first two months of the year have two of these aspects forming. This allows one to culminate and complete the hard work begun during the first one. Collectively, it opens another opportunity to get to work solving practical problems. 
In this case, they will pertain, pertain to a sustainable future and striking a balance with natural systems. February 22nd, Venus will conjunct Mars. This represents the flashpoint in any critical water issues. These two energies merge, desire and action, and all in the watery sign of Pisces. Venus tends to soften the harder edges of Mars and means action may be indirect and diverted into many different areas. Rumors of water wars could surface, but they will largely be dampened down by better agreements around allocation and usage being hammered out. A diplomatic approach is key to any action made now, and especially over this critical resource. If any conflict flares up now, it will be worked out by the Venus-Saturn trine two days hence. Which, of course, brings us to the 23rd and the 24th, where two events will converge. The Sun will square Saturn on the 23rd, which is a perfect metaphor for, our gri- for a gridlocked political body. While the rest of us are demanding change in action pressing is- on pressing issues, leadership is dragging its heels and looking to protect powerful interests at the expense of the masses. The Sun, which represents the self and the collective self, is looking to the future and wanting to make collective progress. Leadership, as represented by Saturn, is remaining stuck and entrenched in old ways of doing things. The intersection point of this could be explosive with the potential for profound change, if we so choose. February 24th, Venus trines Saturn. Symbolically, this signals a time when social institutions have easy communication with each other and are able to agree on accords that have pragmatic implications. It marks diplomatic successes at the international level and getting policy decisions made and implemented. If there were talks forming around the Venus-Mars conjunction, it is about now that some form of resolution is reached. Personally, it can signal a commitment being made to something that involves others close to you. Following that, on the 25th, the Sun will conjunct Neptune. The sun empowers the refining process of Neptune, and with Neptune in Aquarius, it means that we refine the dream of the sustainable future. We begin to flesh it out and to allocate the resources and technologies necessary to make it happen. It is the dream that technology can liberate us and allow us to live in balance with our world. A good day to plan for the future and to dream of what could be. P.S. Mercury will be in retrograde until February 11th, so if it seems that things have a need to be triple-checked, miscommunications abound, or complex processes seem to get their works all gummed up, this may be why. In any case, plan for some turbulence and be sure to be diligent. Fill the pantry and gas tank just in case. These are also excellent times for review, revision, and error correction before anything gets finalized. Also excellent times to negotiate the terms of any agreement. Well, that's a wrap, Cosmonauts. I'll see you next month.
to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with Heisey. And welcome back. Uh, my thanks to Tino Calenda for his astrology update once again this month. And uh, this is the portion where we would offer the opportunity to receive a reading live on the air. Uh, it so happens this particular month there's no one that is called in, and hopefully that means everyone is out enjoying their Sunday and taking advantage of a, a leisurely and um, a productive day. So I just thought that I would close the show by pulling a card just for our message of the month for us to keep in mind as we go through this month. Um, as Tino indicated, and you know, as I've also been reading, there are a number of challenging astrological aspects going on through February and March. And I think that is certainly reflected in the card that has come up for this month, which is the devil. Now, of course, everyone goes, ooh, the devil. It's one of those cards. Um, so that does show us that perhaps we will be having some challenges by people trying to control and manipulate things. Uh, a lot of people will think they're the puppet master and that everyone else should fall in line and allow them to pull the strings for things. Uh, we also want to watch a tendency in ourselves to be trying to do that rather than to be a bit more open to a uh, collaborative process and not necessarily trying to force everyone and everything to be the way that we think we that it should be. Um, also, we can be easily tempted. This is really going to start to show up, I bet you, anything in the latter part of this month uh, with the astrological aspects that are going on where temptation will get the better of us. We will perhaps our eyes will be bigger than our stomach and we will um, grasp for things that are outside of our reach or outside of feasibility and sustainability. We may have a tendency to overspend, to overindulge. Uh, the, the devil card can also be about our vices and addictions. So we really want to watch our tendency to give in to using those things that we may tend to overdo that are not healthy for us or that we use in an unhealthy way, um, especially for escapism, uh, for uh, not dealing with things, uh, for numbing things, um, and whatever that is for you, just watch that tendency because we can tend to give into that too easily and to uh, overindulge in those kind of things in the next few weeks. Um, but the devil card also can come up to remind us to not be afraid to take a walk on the wild side. I think it's funny in my conversation with Geraldine Beskin, we were talking about uh, Aleister Crowley, which often is one of those figures that everybody thinks of as very related to the devil, if not the devil himself uh, in some circles. Uh, but there is that sense of, of giving ourselves over to stepping beyond our taboos and inhibitions to seeing what's across the line from where we normally allow ourselves to be restricting our movement within and to recognize that sometimes just letting ourselves go and giving ourselves the freedom and the permission to go there is actually um, can, can expose us to things that are very exciting and, and interesting, can also open up new vistas, new ex experiences, new perspectives that we would just never come into contact with without doing that. So if there's anything that you've always told yourself you shouldn't do, that you can't do, uh, that, that, you know, a good boy, a good girl, or, or whatever gender you might be, uh, doesn't do, this This may be a month to to 
test that a little bit, to push yourself a little bit, to give yourself permission a little bit, to step a little bit further over that line just to see what else there is um, and, and, and tingle with the sensation of experiencing and trying that. So just thought I would toss that out there to, to keep in mind for this month. Um, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, we're here, uh, well, Firefly Willows L-I-V-E is here all of the time with various shows throughout uh, the month. And I would encourage you to check out all of those shows. You can do that here. The shows are all archived, uh, blogtalkradio.com slash Firefly Willows Live. Uh, or you can find them on iTunes. Just do a quick search for Firefly Willows Live, and you'll find all of them there for listening, download, or you can subscribe to the podcast to get them automatically. Uh, I will be here again Tuesday for the Amethyst Oracle, which I co-host with Charlie Harrington. And I certainly invite you to tune in for that. And if you would like more information just on the show in general or to subscribe to our mail list, you can go to facebook.com slash fireflywillows. And you can always contact me if you would like to ask questions, find out more information about the private readings that I offer, that kind of thing. Um, you can find me at tarotbyhighc.net or on Facebook, just do tarotbyhighc or facebook.com slash tarotbyhighc, and you will find my page there. And you can email me, highc at tarotbyhighc.net. So thank you for listening. My thanks to my guest, Geraldine Beskin, and I will look forward to being here with you again next month for Revolution with High C. Thank you for joining us. Revolution with host High C. Lutmers, brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist with High C. Lutmers and Charlie Harrington, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Mm-hmm.